early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and found that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and I don't know where they have put him. So Simon Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent down and looked and saw the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen and the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was lying there still, separate from the strips of linen. Then, finally, the other disciple, the one who had reached the tomb first, came in. He saw and believed. They did not yet understand from the scriptures that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent down and looked and saw two angels dressed in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and one at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned and Jesus was standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. He asked, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking it was the gardener, she said, sir, if you have carried him away, just tell me where you have put him and I will go get him. Then Jesus said, Mary. At this, she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me yet, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead and tell my brothers that I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. So Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them all the things he had said to her. So on the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And he showed them his hands and he showed them his side. The disciples were overjoyed to see the Lord. The word of the Lord. Well done, Janiel. Well done.
Last week, Gregory Brown memorized the scripture and read it. So I guess he raised the bar. And uh, now everybody has to do that. Can I just say, before I begin, you guys are looking good today. I mean, like Tony Robbins good. I mean, really, really good. And how about that choir? I mean, look out, Brooklyn Tabernacle. I can see Jim Cimbala sweating right now just a little bit. <laughs> that was really, really wonderful. And uh, I'm so grateful that uh, we have such incredible talent here and that we're able to express that uh, on behalf of our risen Lord. And that's really why we're here today. And if you were here this past week, you know that um, we retraced the footsteps of Jesus during his final week on earth. And we did that because we were asking the question, as were many of those who were with Jesus at that time, we were asking the question, who is this? Who is this? What is the true identity of Jesus? And today, on Resurrection Sunday, we will pick up the story three days after his death on the cross, we know that his body was laid in a tomb and that the entrance of that tomb was covered by a huge stone to prevent anyone from coming in or out. And we know that the disciples were in mourning. And you can imagine that they would be. They couldn't believe that this is how it ended. I mean, what went wrong? What went wrong? I mean, they, they had given everything to follow this man, and they believed that he was who he said he was. They believed that he was the Messiah. So how could it be that he is now dead and buried in a tomb? And what would that mean for them? Can you imagine the fear? Everything that you invested in, everything was lost. No doubt they were trying to make sense of many of the things that Jesus had said. Some of the things such as destroy this temple and in three days I will build it up. Or I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will never die but have life everlasting. What did he mean when he said those things? We know that everything happened in that final week exactly the way God intended, right down to the very last detail so that prophecy could be fulfilled. And because of that, this raises some additional questions. Of all the people, of all the people who would have been chosen to be the first to see and experience the risen Lord, why Mary Magdalene? Why Mary Magdalene? Some commentators suggest that Mary Magdalene was a harlot, that her life had been transformed when Jesus cast some demons out of her. She would have been considered an outsider 
We know her theology wasn't great. So why would Jesus choose her? She wasn't influential in society. She wasn't influential in religious circles. So why Mary? The text doesn't say, so we have to speculate. But I'll tell you what I think. I think the reason that Jesus chose Mary Magdalene was because she had a burning heart for Jesus. She loved Jesus with all her heart. And when it comes down to it, there's really nothing more that God wants from us than that. If we love Jesus, if we have a burning heart for Jesus, everything else stems from that. Since it was still dark, it must have been three or four o'clock in the morning when Mary Magdalene got up and made her way to that tomb. And when she arrived, she discovered that the stone had been rolled away. You can imagine what must have been going through her mind in that moment. But why was the stone rolled away? If you think about it, why? We know Jesus had a glorified body. And that means he could transcend time and space. He could have walked through the grave. So the stone was not rolled away for Jesus. So who was it rolled away for? It must have been rolled away for Mary Magdalene and his disciples. And when Peter and John arrived, Scripture tells us that they looked inside the tomb and they saw the grave clothes and the napkin folded up and set aside and they believed. They believed that Jesus was in fact risen from the dead. Some of you are here today because it's Easter. You're here today because you would like to hear something or experience something that would help you believe. Maybe you find the story of Jesus inspiring, but not enough to really transform your life, not enough to embrace the Christian worldview. Well, my prayer for you today is that you will see Jesus and experience Jesus like you never experienced him before. Not through anything that I say, but because the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit is present here, and he's interested in you. He loves you. He created you. He has a plan for you. And it's no coincidence that you are here today. What was it about the grave clothes that made these disciples believe? Well, in those days, when a person died, they would be wrapped in strips of linen, and then they would be covered with a glue-like substance that would harden over time, and the body would ultimately be mummified. And then they would take a napkin or a, 
a piece of cloth that they would wrap around the head and face. And then they would put the body in the tomb. Okay? When the disciples saw the grave clothes, they knew there was something miraculous that had taken place. Because Jesus didn't tear himself out of the grave clothes. He didn't need to. He transcended the grave clothes, and then he left them lying there in a pile. And then he took the napkin or the cloth that was wrapped around his head, and he folded it up, and he set it in a separate place from the grave clothes. And when the disciples saw this, they realized Jesus is alive. If anyone was interested in stealing the body, let's just say someone came along, rolled the stone away, which would have been all but impossible, and they wanted to steal the body, why would they remove his grave clothes? Why would they take the napkin from around his head And why on earth would they fold it up and set it in a separate place from the grave clothes? That just doesn't add up. Now, there is something significant about the folded napkin. And if you know the Hebrew tradition, you would would know this, that when a, a servant is preparing for his master's meal. He sets the table exactly the way that his master would like it to be set. Everything in perfect order. And then the servant will step out of the room, just out of sight from the master, but he's very attentive to what's going on at the dinner table. And when the master has finished his meal, he stands up and he takes the napkin and he wipes his hands, he wipes his face, and then he wads up the napkin and he throws it down on the table. And when he does that, that is a sign to the servant that the servant can then come in and clear the table as quickly as possible and set things up for the next course. But if the master stands up and folds the napkin and sets it down next to the plate, that too is a sign to the servant that I'm not done yet. I'm not done yet and I'm going to return. And so when the disciples saw the folded napkin, they knew that Jesus was not finished and that he would, in fact, return. In that moment, Peter and John knew that the Lord had risen. And in verse 11 and 12, it says that Mary stood outside. She was just outside the tomb as this was taking place, and she was crying. As she wept, she bent over and looked into the tomb, and she saw 
two angels. Two angels seated where, 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 where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. Now, I'd like to show you a picture of the garden tomb from the inside. Can we show that? It's there. Good. It's just not there. Okay. As you can see in the picture, you can see there is a seat at the head and the foot where the angels could sit. And that's where they were seated. Now, the first time in Scripture, this is the very first time in Scripture where we see angels seated. All throughout Scripture, leading up to this point, we see angels standing, flying, fighting, but never are they seated. And so when we see something that is different from the ordinary, the thing that we have to do as we're looking at the text is ask ourselves, what does this mean? What is the significance, if there is any? We need to look. And in the Old Testament, there is the Holy of Holies. Do you remember the Holy of Holies? In the temple, there was a section called the Holy of Holies. It was the innermost part of the temple where only the high priest could go once per year. And in the Holy of Holies, there was one piece of furniture. Do you remember what it was? The Ark of the Covenant. And do you remember what was in the Ark of the Covenant? The Ten Commandments. Okay, and maybe a couple other things. But that was the most significant thing within the Ark of the Covenant. And the lid of the Ark of the Covenant is called the Mercy Seat. And on the Mercy Seat, at the head and at the foot were two angels seated. And what was the mercy seat used for? What did the high priest do when he went into the Holy of Holies? They would sacrifice a lamb, and they would take the blood, and they would put it on the mercy seat as an atonement for the people's sin for that year. But it was only good for the year. And interestingly, they actually would tie a rope around the high priest's ankle in case he didn't have it together, and he went in there and died because the presence of the Lord was so strong or because he had some sort of sin or brokenness in his life that wasn't taken care of before he entered. You see, they wanted to be able to drag his body out without entering the Holy of Holies. Maybe you can see the picture here, the angels seated. You see, I think the reason that the angels were seated at the head and the foot of the grave where Jesus was is they wanted to draw our attention to the fact that Jesus has become the ultimate sacrifice. He has become the mercy seat, not just for a season, but for all time. He was the ultimate sacrifice. 
And when people ask, well, why did Jesus have to die? This is the reason. This is the reason. Because God's law required a blood sacrifice for sin. And after many thousands of years of sacrificing animals, he, God sent Jesus to be the final sacrifice once and for all so that we could be free from the chains of sin and death. And that's why we're celebrating Easter. That's why this day is a day of victory. Now, when Mary saw the angels, the angels asked her, why are you crying? Why are you crying? And she said, they have taken my Lord away, and I don't know where they have put him. You see, she, she still didn't recognize that Jesus had risen. She's still in this place of trauma. But her love for Jesus touched the heart of Jesus. And when the angels asked Mary why she was crying, they are exposing her limited understanding and they're also attempting to open her eyes to the truth of what it is that she is experiencing in that moment. And at this, she turned around and she saw Jesus standing there, but she still didn't recognize that it was Jesus. Jesus asked her, woman, why are you crying? He repeats the question, a probing question. What are you looking for? Jesus, of course, knew exactly what it was that she was looking for. But what he is exposing, or what he is getting at, is the innermost secrets of our heart, and it's the question that he's asking each of us, what is it that you are looking for? What are you looking for? It's a question that is still relevant today. And if you're looking for Jesus, he has already told us that he is in fact, the resurrection and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. Now, Mary's looking at this man, and she thinks that it may be the gardener. So that kind of helps us to understand her state of mind. And so she says, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you put him, and, I, and I'll go and get him. I'll get him. And, and in verse 16... Jesus says to her, Mary. And she turned toward him, and she called out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. You see, she recognizes him in that moment when he calls her name. Did you notice when it was when her eyes were opened? Jesus said one word. One word that stopped her from crying. One word that turned her sorrow into rejoicing. One word that moved her from darkness into light. He called her by name, Mary. What's so significant about that? Why was it that when Jesus addressed her as Mary, instead of woman, which he addressed her as to begin with, and she couldn't recognize him, suddenly he says her name and her eyes are opened. John 10.3 says that he calls his own sheep by name 
and he leads them out. And the followers of Jesus are often referred to as his sheep and he the shepherd. You see, if we know Jesus, he will lead us out of our sorrow. He will lead us out of our brokenness into wholeness. And do you know how he leads you? He leads you by calling out your name. He knows you by name. And those who know his name and recognize his voice will follow him. After Mary recognized Jesus, he said to her, do not hold on to me. Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead and tell my brothers that I am ascending to my Father and your Father and your God and my God. Now here's interesting. Here's something interesting in this passage as well. When Jesus refers to his disciples as brothers, this is the first time he does that. See, every other time that Jesus referred to the disciples, he would call them his disciples. But here he calls them his brothers. Because we cannot become part of the family of God unless we recognize the death and resurrection of Jesus. When we recognize that, we become brothers and sisters in Christ. We are grafted into the family of God. And so what Jesus is revealing right here is that because of his work on the cross and because of his resurrection, we have become part of the family of God. His disciples are now brothers. And in John 20, 18, it says that Mary Magdalene ran back and told the disciples that, that, you know, that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken all of these things to her. And John, the Gospel of John, doesn't tell us what their reaction was, but Mark's Gospel does. Mark's Gospel does, and it says they didn't believe her. They just didn't believe. Now, you would think that based on her testimony, they would stand up and yell, hallelujah. But that was not the state of mind that they were in. You see, they were fearful, and they didn't even have enough faith to investigate what Mary was telling them. And so Jesus came to them. And do you remember how he showed up? The doors were locked. They were cowering in fear. And in walks Jesus right through the door. That would be awesome. Yeah. And do you want to know what evidence they received that gave them peace? In John 20, 20, it says that he showed them his hands and his side, and when they saw that, they were overjoyed. They were overjoyed because they knew that it was their Lord standing before them. When was the last time that you were overjoyed? I mean, really overjoyed. What was the reason? Some of you can't even remember. You're like... 
I think it was 1984. <laughs> Reagan was elected. No, no, I won't go there. <laughs> Today we have reason to be overjoyed. We have reason to be overjoyed because the greatest comeback story ever has transpired. And it affects every aspect of our lives. It actually makes joy possible in our lives, regardless of our circumstances. You see, peace comes from recognizing that we are living in the finished work of God. That's where peace comes from. And the more confidence that we have in the identity of Jesus, the more victory and authority that we will experience in our daily lives. And as we are experiencing victory and authority over the brokenness of this world, we will experience joy regardless of our circumstances. That's a good thing. That is a really good thing. And this morning, Jesus is saying to you, peace be with you. Basically what he's saying is, this is yours. I did this for you. You can tap into this. You can live your life in a state of euphoria if you really tap into who I am. Now, if you're holding on to something this morning that is preventing you from fully receiving Jesus, I encourage you to put it down. Exchange it for something bigger, something better, something stronger. Because he is able to deal with the problems that you're facing far better than you are able to deal with them. And he's willing to. He wants to. He will take you out of your trauma. He will take you out of your unbelief. And he will heal your wounds. Now, there's no place in history more than the Western culture that we live in right now that is more obsessed with identity you see, we're all trying to figure out who we are. That's kind of the basis of our culture. Know who you are. Assert yourself. Make your mark. And the, the cultural narrative is that we are to look inside of ourselves, and we are to discover who we are, and we are to assert whatever that is, whoever you are. And we don't care what anybody else thinks, because it's just you you got to be you. But what I want to tell you is that it is impossible to find security by looking inward. You cannot find the security that you're looking for by looking inward. The way we find security and our true identity is when someone we adore adores us. That's how we find our identity. When someone we respect respects us. When someone we love loves us. And that's what Jesus is saying when he says, Mary. When he calls her by name, he's saying, Mary, I love you personally. I love you expensively, and I love you eternally. And that's what he's saying to you today. I love you personally. I love you expensively. It cost me everything, but it was worth it. And I love you eternally. 
And when Jesus calls Mary by name, he's not only revealing himself to her, he's helping her to recognize who she is. She discovers her identity at the same moment that she discovers his. And we can do the same. If you are looking for your identity, you can find it in Jesus. And Jesus is saying to you, I love you. I am not a dead founder of an ethical religion that you get to know by following a bunch of rules. That's not who I am. I am the living Savior, and you can know me because I am going to heaven where I will sit at the right side of the Father, and I will send my Holy Spirit to indwell you. And when the Holy Spirit is indwelt in you, there is nothing that can separate you from me. That is my plan. That is why I went to the cross, and that's why the God, the God of the universe rose me from the dead so that you could have victory, so that you could have eternal life. And so look into this, folks. If this is something you've been considering but you've never really gotten there, just look into the resurrection and discover what it offers you, how it will transform your life. Your identity. This is what you get. You get identity, you get grace, you get hope, you receive victory, and it's all yours because of the resurrected Lord. It's all yours. And that is the significance of the empty tomb. And that's why we celebrate Easter, because he is, in fact, risen. Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you so much for all of your work forgiving everything so that we could be victorious, so that we could spend eternity with you. Lord, thank you for calling each of us by name. Lord, some of us in this room don't even realize how much we are loved. We're just trying to make it through this week, or maybe just this day, or maybe just this hour. And yet Jesus looks at you and says, you are my masterpiece. I love you more than you could ever even imagine. And everything that James was talking about today, I did for you. And I would do it again. Because you are you are my brother, you are my sister, you are part of my family, and nothing, nothing can take you away from me. In Jesus' name, amen.